Hello and hooray. Uh, we're doing a show today about roadside attractions. Um, you're you're going to be hearing about some specific ones, starting what, with what is possibly the world's largest, world's tallest statue of Uncle Sam. But before that, as my co-host today, I just happen to know somebody who's one of the leading experts in the world about roadside attractions. That would be Bill Griffith, creator of the syndicated daily comic strip Zippy the Pinhead, uh, author of two graphic memoirs most recently and well featured on our show, Nobody's Fool, The Life and Times of Schlitzie the Pinhead. So, Bill... One of the things that uh, Zippy does in his surrealist trip through America and existence is he does talk to roadside attractions, right? He, he speaks to usually giant things. I kind of like to think of it as they speak first <laughs> to him. Good point. He hears them and he engages them in conversation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it started, I guess, in, I would say, 1976 when I did the first Zippy strip in which he speaks to a giant, you know, icon, a giant sculpture, which was um, in San Francisco. There was a chain of restaurants called the Doggy Diner. Mm-hmm. Um, the Doggy Diner featured each each restaurant featured a giant dachshund head with a chef's hat, right. looking dolefully down and turning around, spinning around on a pole. There, there was one in the Mission District in San Francisco that I would pass by all the time. And one day I thought, well, what if Zippy climbed up the pole and talked to the doggy? What would the doggy say and what would Zippy say? That and, was where and, it started. And Zippy and the doggy have stayed in communion over the years, too. Oh, yeah. If you, if you go into San Francisco now to, to seek the doggy, there is one remaining doggy, uh, no longer in front of a restaurant, but r- right opposite the San Francisco Zoo much to the zookeeper's uh, unhappiness <laughs> because it's looking at the zoo. Yeah. Um, but it was put there because it was part of a nearby restaurant, nearby Doggy Diner. It was rescued, and at the bottom of it, there's a plaque giving Zippy credit partially for its rescue. So I, I want to mention one or two, two of the other iconic ones, one of the, the ones. So there are these muffler men, right, okay. who usually who were, once again, giant Paul Bunyan-sized mm-hmm. guys who I guess were cradling mufflers, except that yeah. they, the first thing to go was the muffler. Yeah, um, right. They were all made by one company in San Diego, and I can't remember the year, but I would say mid-60s. They were made for the Midas Muffler Company, um, and they briefly uh, decorated the, you know, the entrance to every Midas Muffler store. Mm-hmm. But Midas Muffler, for some reason, uh, changed its, its mascot to, I think, some kind of a creature with a crown or something, like King Midas, I guess. <laughs> and they, they abandoned the poor Midas muffler man and just let him um, you know, be sold at auction, I guess. So then these, Midas, uh, these muffler men appeared in, in incongruous places all <laughs> over the country. There's, there's several hundred of them. One of them is um, my favorite. <clears throat> the body is altered to be female, so there's sort of breasts. But it's the same body, yeah. and the head is changed to Jackie Kennedy. So kind of a trans thing going on. <laughs> yeah. um, and then this Alfred E. Newman. The Alfred E. Newman muffler man is literally a muffler man statue with an Alfred E. Newman head, and it's the mascot of an ice cream store chain in somewhere in the Midwest. 
Um, and I, there's one uh, zippy annual that I think has both of the the doggy head, the giant doggy head we yeah. just described, and the Midas muffler, the empty armed Midas muffler man. And I think there's a giant duck in between the two. Right, the giant duck is from Long Island. Yeah. famous, actually made famous by uh, Saul Steinberg uh, mm. on a New Yorker cover years ago. Yeah, um, it's also the kind of starting point for the idea of vernacular architecture. You know, buildings that that don't conform to the normal architectural standards that are almost folk art. Mm-hmm. I, I think of the Muffler Man as kind of folk art, even though he was made by a professional company, because there's something wrong anatomically, <laughs> wrong in a nice way. Yeah. You know, his head is too big for his body, his hands look like claws. And, <laughs> uh, that brings up another thing which I love, um, I grew to love, which are distressed roadside attractions. Mm-hmm. Um, muffler men with their heads missing. Mm-hmm. There's a muffler man in Connecticut with the entire upper body missing. So it's just a pair of pants and boots. And it just sits there in front of, I don't know what, yeah. a defunct store. I just love that kind All of right. stuff. There's so much more to say about this, but uh, and we will keep coming back to some of these things as we go along today. But I think we do have to attack the story uh, of the possibly tallest uh, Uncle Sam in America. You are aware of this. Is there anything you want to say about it as we yeah, yeah, plunge into this? He's a great example of folk art, uh, yeah. once again. Um, was it for an ice cream Store? I think it was up. In, well, actually, we'll, we'll, when we get the mayor yeah. of Danbury on, he can yeah, explain I, this. To I know us, it had but. a, had a commer- Almost all these statues have commercial purposes. Right. Of course, the purpose is to make you, as you're driving by, to screech on your brakes and say, right. "I got to go in." Right. This is this is calling to me, which of course is what happens with Zippy. They're calling to him in a similar yeah. way, yeah. except he speaks with them. He doesn't just go in and buy stuff. But yeah, the the there are quite a few um, uh, Uncle Sam giant roadside statues around the country. This is one of the um, coolest ones, I think. It's just um, it, it's it's huge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been restored, right? Um, and uh, I think it will be a, you know a great uh, uh, Connecticut roadside destination. Well, the producer of the show, Jesse Steinmetz, was there on July 25th at the Danbury Railway Museum uh, where there was the opening ceremony. I don't think we can call it an unveiling because how would you veil it? Uh, For this giant Uncle Sam statue, Uh, here's what Jesse heard on that day. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, for bringing two relics of the Danbury Fair here this afternoon. This wonderful Uncle Sam and myself. I get a call one night from the mayor, uh, often late night, and he said, I just bought Uncle Sam. You need to go get him. He's up in Lake George. I'm like, right now? You come upon this and you feel like a kid. You feel like a child. That is a joyful thing. Here we go. Three, two, one. All right. Joining us now uh, is, I think, one of the voices that you hear there, uh, Mark Boughton, the beloved mayor uh, of Danbury. Uh, he's been on our airwaves many times for other reasons, but not ever, Mark, to uh, talk about a gigantic Uncle Sam statue. Maybe you can explain a little bit about the history of this statue and how Danbury came to own it. Yeah, this is definitely a first. Um, so, you know, I'm a huge fan of the show, so thanks for having me. Um, Basically, Uncle Sam was resting at the Great Danbury State Fair for many years. Uh, when the fair closed down, a gentleman from Lake George purchased him uh, and moved him up to Lake George and set him outside his amusement park. Prior to the fair, as was mentioned, he was built for a hamburger uh, stand. There were two of them. There were twins. 
and his hand, the one that now holds the cane, was turned the other way and held a hamburger. Uh, but it never was finished. It got about three-quarters of the way finished, and then the hamburger chain went uh, bankrupt, and then the owner of the fair uh, commenced and, and commissioned the finishing of the Uncle Sam uh, and brought it to Danbury. Uncle Sam was part of the land of giants at the great Danbury State Fair. It was really a meeting point for residents or people who went to the fair. You would say, uh, you know, meet me at the Uncle Sam before we walk in. So that was sort of a common meeting area where everybody uh, knew where to go. But let's make no mistake, this is the largest Uncle Sam ever in the history of mankind. I just want to get that out there. Isn't there, Mark, some kind of dispute about this that involves maybe another <laughs> Uncle Sam statue that it's on a stand or something, which yeah, is cheating? Yeah, bring that up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That up. All right. But yeah, it's on a, it, there is another one that's on a stand. It's a 15-foot-high platform, so that adds effectively 15 feet to the whole uh, edifice. But ours is the only freestanding largest Uncle Sam statue. How's that? Okay, and how, t- and how high is yours? 39 feet. Yeah. So, Bill, as the commissioner of Roadside Attractions, America's commissioner of Roadside Attractions, I think we, had, we would agree a stand is cheating, right, if you're trying to be the tallest? Yes, although uh, I'm not against stands. But, yeah, if you're talking about height, yeah. you should talk about from foot to head, yes. Right. That seems only fair. Yes. Um, th- uh, Mr. Mayor, there was some uh, rumor that you, you mentioned hands, that in the difficulty of transporting this statue uh, from uh, from New York State to Danbury, uh, one of the hands might have been slightly injured? No, <laughs> no I know. That was... Uh... People are so funny, right? So, um, and I'll explain why in a second. When we were transporting him back from Lake George, we had to remove one of the hands because he would get caught under the overpass. It would get uh, clipped on the overpass and get damaged. So we took the hand off. But when we put him back up, we left the hand off for a reason because we had, he was holding a cane, and you know we had to put the concrete down first. So it, I know it caused a lot of stress, um, in some cases uh, turmoil in people's lives, that Uncle Sam stood without a hand, a missing hand, for several weeks. But eventually he was uh, made whole and uh, is now standing proudly. But um, no damage was done to him. Although Robbins Graphics out of Woodbury, a small uh, operation, did a phenomenal job at restoration. You, you really have to see the work that this individual did. He did a terrific job. Bill, were you stressed when Uncle Sam was missing a hand? I wish I had photographs. I don't have photographs <laughs> because, like I said before, I love to do uh, uh, strips with Zippy where he's speaking with distressed roadside <laughs> statuary as well as beautiful, perfect roadside statuary. Now, unfortunately, not everybody sees things the same way. Not everybody sees Roadside America through the same eyeballs. So uh, it turned out there was an editorial written in the News Times of Danbury uh, that uh, did not heap praise upon this new addition to the Danbury family. Uh, We are going to have it read now by uh, WNPR's own Carmen Baskoff. Due to a uh, quirk in Carmen Baskoff's contract, we have to play this theme song by Matt Farley before uh, she reads it. So here we go. Let's take a break from Colin McEnroe so we can listen to the Carmen Baskoff Show. I write this letter to you now to share with you the opinions of all Danburyans whose voices were never heard concerning the gothic monstrosity that stands before the Danbury Railway Museum. Never before in my entire life have I had the displeasure of seeing such ugliness. In the sun, the daunting figure is goofy and awkward like some cartoon. In the dull and gray of a rainy day, it becomes gaunt and drab, like the Pink Floyd headmaster in another Brick in the Wall video. 
somebody help and please remove another total waste of money. Sincerely, Edmund J. Kingham. So we actually have with us now um, the uh, writer of that letter, Edmund J. Kingham, uh, and Mayor Boughton. And I don't want this this to turn into some kind of ugly spat, obviously, although, uh, Mr. Kingham, you did use rather strong language in that letter. Yes, thank you for inviting me to the show. It was was strong, but it was harsh, um, but it was um, written with humor and uh, lampoon. Uh, in the same vein of, of uh, Monty Python satire work. Um, there was no, you know, and I just want to make sure, let me get this clear, there's, there's no animosity between me and uh, Mayor uh, Bounton. I've met him a few times, and uh, let me get that out of the way. There's uh, uh, no criticism of him and no criticism of the actual statue. What I objected to, what I did not like, was it does not look like the Uncle Sam that I grew up and loved who is a fierce-looking fella, almost a warrior-like fella that's used in, you know, World War One and World War Two, and, you know, I want you for the U.S. Army poster and, you know, lifting the spirits of the country during a time of war. Although, um, although, I saw it. though, Mayor Bowden, perhaps it is time for a kinder, gentler uh, Uncle Sam. Well, I, I think uh, I definitely uh, respect, uh, uh, you know, the views that were presented. I think, first, I just want to be clear that um, we raised the money uh, to bring uh, Uncle Sam home, and that while there was some in-kind contributions from the city in terms of worker volunteers and things like that, the ma- all the major expenses were covered by local corporations. So I just want to get that out there. Secondly, um, definitely agree. He's a different kind of Uncle Sam, but for those of us that remember the great Danbury State Fair, this is just an iconic piece of Danbury history. That's what, that's what makes it so special, right? And, and Uncle Sam is something different to everybody. Um, so is isn't necessarily about Uncle Sam as much as it's about the 150th anniversary of, of the State Fair and, and uh, so many of us longing for his return and, and just remembering a different time in Danbury, a different time in Connecticut, and a different time in the United States of America. So definitely can mean different things to different people. I get it. Uh, absolutely. Um, Bill Griffith, I have to ask if Zippy will be making any visits to Uncle Sam in Danbury. Uh, yeah, I'm getting information and background as we speak here. Yeah, I think you will. Um, <clears throat> my opinion about the whole thing is you have to remember there are basically two kinds of these sculptures, these figures, these giant figures that usually stand in front of some sort of business. Um, one you would have to categorize as folk art. Mm-hmm. And the other, you would say, is professional. Yes. The Doggy Diner in San Francisco is professional. Mm. It was actually designed by a Disney animator. The Uncle Sam in Danbury is folk art. It is not anatomically correct. Mm. It's a little bit awkward. It's full of charm, mm-hmm. which is what folk art, of course, exudes in general. Uh, it's full of personality. It's full of quirkiness and oddness, as well as evoking whoever... Like the mayor said, Uncle Sam means something different to different people. There is no connection between that Uncle Sam and the Montgomery flag painting of Uncle Sam saying, I need you for the U.S. Army that we all have in our heads. There's zero connection. Whoever first designed and built this Uncle Sam statue in Danbury probably did not look at that poster. <laughs> so um, uh, we just have to say one thing about this, uh, Mayor Bowden, which is I guess there is some kind of theory that Uncle Sam is really from Danbury. This feels like Danbury chauvinism to me, but uh, <laughs> but 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 there is some idea that he really does belong in Danbury. 
Well, n- not really, no. So Uncle Sam uh, named, there's a lot of theories about how that whole term came up, right? And without uh, spending an hour on it, essentially, um, he, he, most common knowledge, or most people will say uh, the consensus is that this name belonged to Sam Wilson, and he was born uh, in Troy, New York, and buried in Vermont. Mm. Now, Troy, New York, was engaged in a vicious bidding war with me, and I was able wow. to outfox him with my charm and my checkbook to get him before Troy took him back. So really, Troy would probably argue that he really belongs there. But remember, this Uncle Sam stood at our state fair for many years, and that's the the emotional connection to a lot of the residents of Danbury have to it. All right. Well, uh, we haven't exhausted this subject, but we are exhausted, So, and we do have to move on here. So thanks uh, so much to uh, Mayor Mark Boughton uh, and, of course, uh, Edward Kingham, uh, the remarkable Carmen Baskoff, and we're going to just keep going here. Bill and I will be back after the break. I out so fat because it was my trade, sir. Till I listed for a soldier boy with pork or arms brigade, sir. For to fight for Uncle Sam. He'll lead us on to glory, ho. He'll lead us on to glory, ho. To save the stripes and stars. For our once in a All right. We're talking about roadside attractions. In studio with me is Bill Griffith, the creator of the daily uh, comic strip Zippy and author of two graphic memoirs, and most recently, The Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, you really should look at this. Uh, Nobody's Fool, The Life and Times of Schlitzie the Pinhead. I'd also like to point out I was on your website today and uh, marked for clearance was a book for which I wrote the introduction. I didn't know how to feel oh, yeah. about it. I was on the clearance table, <laughs> this book that I wrote the introduction for. Um, so before we go to uh, Mark Klein and Foamhenge and all that, we should say that Connecticut has been bountiful for Zippy. Uh, did you – now, we were talking before we went on the air. There actually was a, was a Timex Museum in Waterbury with an Easter – an inexplicable Easter Island head in front of it. Yeah, I thought I think you might have said you thought it was no longer there, but – I'm not <clears> sure the with the I think if I the, well I was yeah. reading a thing that was in the past tense. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, well, here's the, here's the background. I moved to I moved to Connecticut in 1998 from San Francisco. Okay. When you live in a place for 28 years, as mm-hmm. I did in San Francisco, you begin to kind of just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. When I moved, everything was fresh. Everything was new. I I had never lived in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. I had grown up on Long Island, but Connecticut was still. Un- unknown to me. So I was super aware of my my surroundings all of a sudden. Yeah. And so one of the things that popped into my awareness very quickly uh, was the muffler man in Norwich mm-hmm. and the giant bowling pin in Norwich on one early visit. And then the giant Easter Island statue in Waterbury and et cetera, et cetera. And then all the diners, right. which I also consider to be a kind of roadside attraction. They have a kind of Similar iconic quality, I think. Right. So yes, um, sort of the fact that that my surroundings were suddenly new to me again mm. gave me a big springboard in which Zippy also saw things for the first time, <laughs> and he began to speak and listen um, to these giant icons. Well, we're going to talk to a man now, actually, who uh, designed and built and created one of the things, not in Connecticut, but one of the things uh, that I believe Zippy has spoken to. Uh, His name is Mark Klein, artist and owner of Enchanted Castle Studios and the creator uh, of Foamhenge, uh, among many other things. And I have to say that 
getting ready for the show, at one point I just on Facebook uh, said, what's the best roadside attraction you've ever seen? And I got 217 comments, which is a lot for me on Facebook, uh, to that particular question. One of the things that came up was something called Dinosaur Kingdom 2, which I think really ultimately prompted our call to Mark. But first of all, Mark Klein, welcome to this conversation. Well, thanks for having me. And and uh, let's begin with Foamhenge. Explain what Foamhenge was or is. Well, first of all, I mean, I build figures for theme parks and attractions all over the country. And uh, and uh, Foamhenge was just something that I did for myself. It, you know, I, I, I do something every year in the state of Virginia for April Fool's Day. And uh, this happened to be one of those uh, opportunities to... Uh, do something a little bit, uh, you know, left from center. And uh, I had uh, uh, a, um, a source for giant foam blocks and uh, had the piece of property uh, donated to me. So uh, I thought, hey, you know, why not, uh, why not a full-size replica of Stonehenge? So uh, we, I should say, Mark, as you, I think, have divined, uh, the creator of Zippy is here in the studio with me. So, so Bill, oh, yeah. uh, Bill, Hi. Bill, Bill Zippy has beheld Fomenge, correct? Yes, and um, I think he, was, he communicated with uh, Fred, Fred and Wilma Flintstone at Fomenge, I believe, yes. The first you know, I, I, missed the day, I missed the day he came up there. I'm so, <laughs> I'm, I'm so bummed out over that. But, I'll send but it to you. I will say that I, I, did, I did make a copy of that, uh, that cartoon, mm. and, and we actually put it up there at, uh, oh. at the Fomenge. So he's one of the many celebrities and probably the, the most popular celebrity that's been there. Oh, that's so, nice. Oh, yeah, the, the uh, first panel reads, at last... Proof that the styrofoam industry had its origins in the mists of the Neolithic age. Um, so, um, so yes, yeah, somebody also, Mark you've, Mark, you've done all kinds of things. We'd be here all day trying to talk about all the various sculptures and figures and things that you've made. But somebody did on my Facebook page put up Dinosaur Kingdom 2, where I was alar- alarmed to see <laughs> dinosaurs uh, with Union soldiers in their jaw, writhing in their jaws. Um, and I thought, you know, that seems kind of wrong somehow. But but I want you to tell us the story of Dinosaur Kingdom Two. Well, it's not so wrong. It's 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 all about uh, uh, you know it's it's history in the making. I yeah. Mean, it's you know Virginia was sixty percent of the battles in the Civil War took place in Virginia, mm. and um, you know so uh, as an attraction builder, I thought you know I, I wanted. To, to do something with the Civil War, and I always liked dinosaurs. I mean, shoot, I mean, I was building dinosaurs way before Jurassic Park even came out. So, uh, um, you know, I had this this opportunity again to to uh, build an attraction here, and um, uh, which I built several of them over the years. And this was just something that uh, was for me. And uh, I had uh, uh, sixteen acres. Um, hey, you know, I married the two together and came up with a very unique attraction. Now, this was something that was inspired way, way back when I was a child. There was a movie called Valley of the Gwanji, and it was, I think, a Ray Harryhausen movie. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, these things, you know, we're, we're all inspired from our, you know, past experiences, and this just sort of came to fruition. So if I understand the backstory correctly, it would have been that um, the Union time-traveled, brought dinosaurs to fight the South, but then the dinosaurs turned on their keepers. Well, no. What actually happened is the the the, um, the, the dinosaurs were in hibernation for for all, you know millions of years, mm-hmm. and then the the Yankees were 
they were um, uh, invading Lexington, Virginia, which is not far from here. It's where Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee are buried, and 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 all the. Uh, and this has actually happened. It was called um, uh, it's called Hunter's Raid, and the vibrations in the earth caused the dinosaurs to release. And then the the, the Yankees saw this as an opportunity. Hey, look at these animals. We can use these as weapons of mass destruction against the South. And so this was a, a, a small chapter that happened in the war. Of course, it was covered up by you know, historians. Um, you know, the history is written by the victors, naturally, and it was such an embarrassment to the Yankees that, uh, that they just they, they left it out altogether. And, uh, but now you can visit back in time by coming to my park here, and uh, you go through the time tunnel, and you can see how it all unfolded. Like I said, left out of the history books. Right. They're always trying to change history now. Yeah. What, history you know. is written by the velociraptors, I believe, is the exact uh, same thing. So is this still, so this is still, I mean, Bill, Bill is visibly fidgeting, like he just wants to get in, like you just want to get in your car right now and drive there. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, first I want to know, uh, were you being ironic or were you being truthful? Um, uh, a little of both. Okay, yeah. good. All right. You, you, you have to you have to have. Okay, you were promoting. Okay, I got it. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, it is, I mean, it is what it is. We have a lot of uh, people that, that pull in, and to, to the attraction, they're going like, they're, they, they just can't believe something like this even exists. So, you know, a lot of times it's just a curiosity thing. They pluck down the money, and they go through it, and they go, oh, my God. I mean, because, you know, think about it. A lot of these roadside attractions of this nature did go out of existence. I mean, they, they popped up back in the, uh, you know, right after the war, uh, World War Two, uh, and a lot of these attractions, um, you know, talk about the Muffler Men and, and uh, uh, all these um, iconic characters, which I build several of those uh, also, and send them around the country. And, uh, but th- this was a, a country that was trying to rebuild, and they, they had the automobile. The automobiles were starting to really sell. You know, people had two-week vacations, and they were getting in their cars. And they were putting the war behind them, and they were uh, vacationing to these places. And people, you know, along the road wanted to have, you know, a little more of an edge to bring people into their, you know, what they were called filling stations back then. Mm-hmm. And so they would hire pe- people, or they'd go out and build their own, <clears throat> you know, giants or, or dinosaurs or whatnot to, to, to get people to turn their steering yeah, wheel. Yeah, and this was all before uh, Disneyland and Disney World and yes. all the, the theme parks that are highly um, organized. So these were the kind of the origins of theme parks in a way. Yeah, yeah, very, very much so, very much so, and it, and it, and it goes it goes even further back. But um, but but at some point the attractions, uh, the roadside attractions, sort of uh, took me, went into a lull. I mean, I'd say I got into it when I was in my early twenties, in the early eighties, and and that's about the time you know you don't go into a business when it's dying, you know. But I did. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, so I've been credited with, with, you know, pulling it back up to a, a different level. And, uh, and they still exist. I mean, lots of them still exist in, in lots of different mm-hmm. ways now, though. Mm-hmm. Right. So we should point out also, you know, we talked about Foamhenge at the beginning, but you are probably, no, I think you are, Mark, definitely the only man who has made two full-sized replications of Stonehenge. You didn't stop with Foamhenge. You went further. You made Bama Henge, right? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking about starting a new business called um, Stonehenge Replicas RS. (laughs) See how far I can get with that. You know, I joke joke around with people. I built the one for the uh, man in Alabama. He's a multi-billionaire. His name is George Barber, and I built his in 2012. And I like to say that, you know, that was the year that the the Mayan calendar supposedly ran out. And so when the aliens came back to you know, to to uh, reinvade, they were like, they're they're uh, hmm. We're uh, now. Wait a minute. We there's one over here in England, and there's one over here down in 
buttons. There's one in natural. Oh, the heck with this. Let's get out of here. We we're at the wrong place. Right. Uh, I might be. I might actually be credited with either saving the earth or. Well, I don't. Well, I don't know. Maybe that wasn't a good thing. We no. We probably owe our lives to you. Um, so yeah, that was. What was that? The year of the harmonic convergence. It was at the end of the Mayan calendar. So that's that's when yeah, you saved yeah, us. Something like that. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. People people always read into anything that they <laughs> they want. There, you know, whatever. <laughs> are, are there some things that you just built? Like I saw, I was like looking on some website, and I think I saw. I don't know, Hannibal riding an elephant. Are all these things for you, or do people... Well, you just mentioned this guy in Alabama asked you to do this. So you do commission work? No, I, I do. That's the biggest part of my business, um, the Enchanted Castle Studios here. In fact, I'm actually doing work up in for a, a Nature's Art Village in, in Connecticut now. So, I mean, I, I go all over the country and, and the world. But but the April Fool's things are just something that I do as an entertainer, as a performer. Um, I, I just like to, to um, you know... It, Take take something unusual and, uh, and and put it out there. The, the the world is my museum, so I'll pick a landscape or a building or somewhere somewhere in the in, in the state of Virginia, and and go in on March the thirty first and, and and erect something something huge. Uh, year, last year I took a, a small town and um, I, I, it was a it was a town that was struggling financially or economically, and I put giant bugs all on the tops of the buildings. So the next morning people woke up to these. You know, to the to the to the buzz in town, and uh, and 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 you know, and it also helped. Uh, to, um, it helped the, the town too because lots of tourists came in just to see what was going on. So we left those up there for about five months, and typically I leave my April Fools' uh, events up for for about a month. So what is it you're doing in Connecticut? Because Bill and I may have to meet you there. Where, what what are you doing in Connecticut? Oh, okay. Well, it, there's a, a, a roadside uh, a business, um, which is sort of a. Um, uh, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a dinosaur park. They have uh, antiques there. Um, it's uh, called uh, Nature's Art Village, and it's in uh, not far from New London. I feel like Bill. It's Bill, on, you've been there. It's right? on Route 85. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, um, Oakdale, Oak, <clears throat> uh, Oak something. Ch- Chest- yeah, Chesterfield, yeah. I think, is the nearest right, little uh, town. But yeah, it's, it's a giant dinosaur. It's a uh, one of the. Two two legged variety dinosaurs there. Oh, they got oh they got a, several. I mean, they got acres and acres of. of uh, I mean, they've got. Uh, uh, you know, I did stuff for their mini golf. In fact, I'm doing some some things for them right now. A giant rib cage that you walk through as an entranceway. But I mean, but these these are the things that I do, and um, uh, and it brings a lot of enjoyment to people's lives. It does. Well, did you have a final question for Mark? Uh, do you ever put on a, uh, a red and yellow polka dotted muumuu while you're doing these things by any chance? You, you know, there's a first time for everything. Right. Well, yeah, we'll meet you in Chesterfield. <laughs> okay. Uh, but, but, we, but, we can we, to, you know, let me make a note of that. Yeah, okay. we can make that ha- happen. Mark Klein, artist and owner of Enchanted Castle Studios, uh, creator of Foam Hinge and so many other things. Thanks for being with us today. All about the fun. Thank you. <laughs> All about the fun. Are we having fun yet? Yeah. So right. it does seem as though, you know, when when we think about these roadside attractions, as you say, there's... The more inappropriate they are, the better, right? Yes, because what we're really talking about is what I like, I like to call brand X America. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's the um, there's the so-called uh, normal, accepted America, which would encompass all the chain restaurants, McDonald's, etc., strip malls. Malls in general, you know, the disnification of Times Square. I mean, this is. There's a professional level of 
uh, outdoor and, and oddball entertainment that has gotten totally mainstreamed over the years. But in a parallel track, there are these odd, uh, one-of-a-kind um, works of art, really, that, that are created for a commercial purpose, but usually that commercial purpose fades and the, uh, the object remains. And so then it takes on its own personality and okay. it divorced from its original intent and it becomes a work of art. Although there are some cases, I don't know whether you uh, want to talk uh, about them, where the business itself is still around and they don't necessarily consider their icon, this giant icon that they've created, to be somehow or other folk art that is in any way in the public domain. Folk art is something in the, the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Um, I'm not talking about antiques roadshow folk art. Right. Uh, this is somewhere in between that kind of folk art and a professional sculptor creating a big roadside figure. The, the challenges in making a roadside figure are enormous for a sculptor. So unless you hire a professional... Like Mark. Right. Yeah, he, he's, he's in a whole category by himself, <laughs> various <laughs> ways. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so the, the fact that something is perceived by other people <clears throat> as folk art is strictly up to the individual. Right. You know, in the opening credits of the Sopranos TV show, they show, they show Tony driving mm. home from New York, I guess. He's driving along the Connecticut Turnpike, and then he t- takes an exit, and you see things from his point of view in quick mm. s- shots. And one of them is a giant muffler man, mm-hmm. which uh, I can't remember where. It's, it's uh, under the Pulaski Skyway, I think. And it's, he's holding a, uh, a carpet, a big rolled-up carpet. Mm-hmm. Now, do the people that uh, that are in that store, do they think that it's folk art? I don't think so. They just think it's advertising. And, and something about the fact that it is, that these things are so commercial most of the time, that's some of the appeal to you, right? That, that I yes. mean, you're Zippy. Let's forget about you for a second and talk about Zippy. Zippy is spoken to often by things that many people would consider bad taste, you know, right. things that are... well, you, or, or bad for you, like uh, covering a ding-dong with taco sauce. Right. Yes. Um, now, Zippy uh, loves, relates to, um, is born from American pop culture. So this is a great example of that. It's of almost zero interest to me f- to make fun of Disney. Right. I, I have done it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's too easy. There's a cease and desist letter you can frame that. <laughs> yeah, actually, I've never gotten one from Disney. Hello <laughs> Kitty, yes, not Disney. Okay. Um, so uh, it's a natural marriage that Zippy would be attracted to these roadside icons, especially if they are not connected to anything uh, mainstream or you know strip mallish. So yes, he. Um, he relates to them in the same way he does to all other uh, uh, things American, which is he loves them without uh, any critical distance whatsoever. And that's not what we all want. Yes. And further, he, he talks to them mm. and, and they become living creatures. In his, in his doggy diner days, back when I was in San Francisco and, and, and post-San Francisco, uh, the doggy and Zippy have a relationship. Mm. 
the doggy uh, is is not specified gender wise, but Zippy and the doggy are in love with each other. The doggy a little more so than Zippy. Mm-hmm. So Zippy occasionally is accused of betrayal by the doggy, especially if he doesn't visit him for three or four months. Um, but they have an ongoing relationship. Uh, I have to say, and here's this is not meant to be funny here. After my mother died in 1998, um, I felt compelled to go out to the doggy on Sloat Boulevard in San Francisco, the one that is still there mm-hmm. now. And I wanted to be comforted by him, and I was. I bet you that's not that uncommon, you know, that people form relationships with these things that are their own unique relationships. Um, All right, so we're going to take a break here. By the way, we probably, if you're listening here in the afternoon, here on Thursday afternoon, we're live. If you wanted to phone in about your favorite roadside attraction, we might have a little time for that. 860-275-7266. We don't really want to hear about anything uh, tasteful or high-minded, but we would love to hear about like Snake Farm or something, uh, which was like a real place. I think they changed the name of it. But the Ramones, like, they used to wear Snake Farm t-shirts and stuff like that. So anyway, 860-275-7266. When we come back, Bill and I are going to talk about a man that I think even Bill and Zippy could not have fully anticipated. Uh, A man who knits sweaters of landmarks and then stands in front of the landmarks in the sweaters. So that's coming up. I can't get out of my head. What's the meaning of Stonehenge? It's killing me that no one knows why it was built 5,000 years ago. Why did they build the Stonehenge? How could they raise the stone so high? Is it possible? that Easter Island was originally a roadside stand selling firecrackers and whoopie pies, and then the bridge washed out? Today's show is produced by Jesse Steinmetz, with help from Betsy Kaplan, Jonathan McPants, and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by a giant muffler man. On tomorrow's show, The Nose watches an actually good rom-com and eats Burger King's new Impossible Burgers. And now... Back to calling. Right. Burger King is now introduced. Uh, it's uh, it's now selling Impossible Burgers. Impossible Burgers are actually some kind of textured vegetable protein, which we've already eaten once on this show, but not as a Whopper. We will be eating it in Whopper form uh, tomorrow. Uh, all right. So I've already basically uh, signaled to you who our next guest is, although we also have Michael and Doug have called in. I, I We will get to you. Absolutely. Um, we are, anybody wants to call in about their favorite roadside attraction, 860-275-7266. Our next guest is not a roadside attraction. He does not make roadside attractions, but he becomes almost a fabric bridge from a roadside attraction or a landmark to the rest of the world. Uh, his name is uh, Sam Barsky, and he's joining us right now. Uh, and first of all, welcome to our conversation. Bill Griffith, creator of Zippy, is also with me, Sam. Hi. Hi. So explain it, what it is that you do. You, you, well, you explain it. So what I do is I knit sweaters. I have pictures of all different things on them. They could be nature. They're landmarks of all different kinds. And basically anything you want could be on a sweater. 
and and so, but a, a lot of this, and I've been on your Facebook page, stuff like that. Uh, then the the piece de resistance is the moment where you, in the sweater that you have knitted, confront the thing that the sweater is knitted about, right? Yes, like somewhere along the way, when I was doing this, I got the idea: why don't I take pictures wearing these things in front of the respective landmarks? And, and so do you have one or two favorite examples of that, moments where you, you felt complete uh, because you and your sweater and the landmark had all come together? Yes. That, whenever I finish one, I don't consider it truly complete until I get that picture in front of the landmark. So, any, so for example, yeah, yeah. I, I finished my Sedona sweater like a week and a half ago, but I didn't consider that complete until I got a picture in Sedona the other day. And and you have Bill is from San Francisco. You've done a Golden Gate Bridge sweater, right? Yes, I did that one many years ago. And then I I assume stood in front of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes, I did that back in 2013 while I was on my way to Singapore and had a stopover. Um. So um. So I I guess I I, I this has become a viral sensation. Maybe you can give me a sense of like how how much. How many people are are now interested in this? I mean, who's looking at your sweaters? Uh, how has this kind of traveled through the Internet uh, and become something that people know about and care about? I don't know really how many people are fans from around the world, but I do know approximately how many Facebook and Instagram followers I have. And how many would that be? I have about 38,000 on Instagram Somewhere over forty thousand on Facebook, and and so let me ask you this: um, If it were possible, I, I'm not saying this is something that I can arrange, but let's say that we could start a Kickstarter thing. You know how they have these private rockets that go into space? It's, I mean, sooner or later, one of them is going to get to the moon. So I'm thinking, you knit the moon sweater, we get you to the moon, and then we take the sweater picture on the moon. How does this sound? Yes. I don't think I quite I'll go to the moon in my life, but yeah. I did go to a place in Alabama that looks like the moon, that has the rocket. There wasn't a Stonehenge there by any chase, chance, was there? Yeah, I've been to the real Stonehenge. I've been to a replica Stonehenge in Missouri as well. All right. So, Bill, do you have any particular questions for Sam? Um, yeah. So, um when you knit your sweaters, are they meant for other people as well or just for yourself? Like, right now, I only make them for myself because it takes me a month to make one. But in order to enable other people to have them, I'm pretty soon going to have them mass-produced, printed on T-shirts that everyone can buy. There you go. That's, I was trying to figure out how you could monetize this thing. Um, you probably could, you know, there are websites that do on-demand purchasing of T-shirts and everything else. I bet there's one that will actually sell sweaters. Yeah, so th- I'm working with this company called Picture This Clothing based in Las Vegas. Yeah. And starting this fall, they're going to print them on T-shirts. Okay, well, my my um, recommendation is that you go all the way to sweaters and just find the right company to make them for you. Because, you you know, it could be sweaters. They could be printed on the sweater. It wouldn't have to be um, actually. When you do the sweater, what do you use? Are you using knitting needles? Yes. You are. It's a pair of knitting needles. I knit wow. them by hand. It takes me about a month to do one. Okay. Well, someday your sweaters will be on Antiques Roadshow. 
There you go. So is there is there a particular place that you're uh, headed towards next in terms of knitting the sweater and then going there? Do you know what your next big destination is? Yeah, so I just got done with the Grand Canyon. I have a long wish list of hundreds of places mm-hmm. all over the world. I haven't done any of the Pacific Northwest yet, for example. <laughs> I want to do one of Machu Picchu one day in Peru. Yeah. All right. Well, you've got dreams, and they're great dreams. Sam Barsky, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Sam Barsky, who knits sweaters of landmarks, stands in front of the landmarks and has his picture taken. Thank you for being with us. I did ask people if they had uh, some specific uh, roadside attractions. We've got a little bit of extra time here left at the end. The number is 860-275-7266, You can call in. We are not uh, even slightly interested in things that have serious historical import uh, that don't involve uh, dinosaurs participating in Civil War battles. Uh, We're interested in other kinds of things. Um, So here's Michael uh, with uh, something uh, he wants to talk about. Hi, Michael. Yeah, if you're going on 95 through Providence, Rhode Island, I believe there's an exterminator company that has a big fly on top of a building or a big bug. It's a big bug. It's not a fly. It's still there. It's slowly deteriorating, um, (laughs) which which only adds to its charm. And it looms up over as you pass by it. It's eye level with the with the turnpike. You're actually looking right into the face. It's some kind of a generic bug. I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's been in Zippy Strip several times. All right. So it's going to be hard to stump Bill here, I think. <laughs> uh, but so we like that, too, because also it's, it it's, sounds like it's becoming distressed. Yes. it's it's. Um, uh, there's a place in the Midwest called, I think it's called the Fiberglass Boneyard. The Fiberglass Boneyard is part of a company that makes giant fiberglass statues. Mm-hmm. Not quite folk art, almost professional. Like you know, a giant uh, JFK, right. you know? but ones that don't quite work out, where the mold has a problem, mm-hmm. they toss into this boneyard behind their building, <laughs> and they're all lying on the ground. Uh, there's like a giant yogi bear with his his body is like half rotted away, and I've done numerous zippy strips where Zippy comes to commiserate with the uh, the, the the creatures in in this fiberglass boneyard. There's a fine line between exalted roadside attractions and nightmare fuel. And, and yeah. maybe that line just is constantly There, there are two Tucker guys Park. who I can't remember the name of. I was talking to your producer who uh, uh, they're de- they've dedica- dedicated their lives to, to saving, to rescuing giant roadside attraction statuary. Um, and when I found out about them, I asked if they had photos to share when they, and they said they did. And then I said, you know, can you please send me the photos of the statues before you fix them, yes. before you repaired them? And th- they're very poignant. So these know? are like wildlife rehabilitators, like the, they're taking the raptor yeah, with the broken wings. I don't wings. know how they're making a living, but yeah. they're going around the country rescuing muffler men. Yeah. All right. So um, here's Doug uh, somewhere in New York, some unpronounceable place in New York. Hi, Doug. You're on the air. <laughs> hello. Hello. So, no, I live in Connecticut, but the place I remember is in Tonawanda, New York. Oh. All right. And what is it? Well, it was a uh, car wash in the shape of a gigantic whale. Oh, yeah. Huh. Uh, and so it was quite big because it was a standard size car wash. Now, the, it's no longer there. 
So I'm not sure this qualifies. Well, it could be that those guys actually have it and are fixing it up again or something. I, I've seen pictures of it. I think you actually went into the whale's mouth. Right. Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah. Kanawanda, New York. Yeah. And there's a I've... second one that came to my mind. Yeah. Which was in Crystal Beach, Ontario, at the old Crystal Beach amusement park. And it was one of those huge Paul Bunyans. Yes. Yeah. Well, those they're all over the place. Yeah. I actually had this theory that Zippy needs to do like a separate Canadian tour because there's like Canadian stuff is all different. Like there's this huge smiling apple that somebody sent me a picture well, of. Yeah. No. There's there's a national flavor to roadside right. attractions. Um, I get pictures all the time from Zippy readers, and my favorite non-American country for roadside attractions is actually Australia. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Any particular thing you remember? Uh, they're usually agricultural, you know, yeah. giant uh, kiwis and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, oh, I've got like a minute left. So, Joe, you're going to have to be really, really fast. But you're calling from San Francisco? And I know. I, this is Joe calling from actually Old Weathersfield. Oh, very close to San Francisco. Anyway, yeah, go fast because we're almost out of time. Okay. San Francisco was my native place. I was born there and moved in at nine. But we, I always remember driving. I'm not sure if it was on Mission Street, uh, but there was a cafe called the um, Black Crow Cafe, I believe. And mm. it had a live black crow in a cage in the window. I'm just wondering if uh, Mr. Griffith uh, remembers it. No, that was before my time. That, that's a whole separate show about semi-public animals, you know, with <laughs> like cats that live in libraries. And there used to be best cleaners used to have a minor bird that would go, get the steam clean. It would like badger the customers to get <laughs> expensive services. All right. So we have to go. Thanks to Bill Griffith, creator of Zippy. Thanks to Jesse Steinmetz, who's produced a terrific show.